Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Andre Grizal, who is the Vice President of Academic Affairs at Montana Bible College. And we're going to be talking about his essay, Considering the Weave of the Text, John Collette's Neoplatonic Exegesis of 1 Corinthians, from the book Philosophy and the Christian, The Quest for Wisdom in the Light of Christ. Um, Dr. Grizal, such a pleasure to have you on today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, PJ. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Gisal and I have a, a personal relationship. Uh, he was actually a very formative mentor for me through my undergrad and the start of my grad career. So um, really excited to have him here today. Um, but before I go too far down the memory lane, just um, wanted to ask you, Dr. Gisal, what prompted you to write uh, this essay, and how does it fit into kind of the, the book, Philosophy and the Christian? That's a great question. Well, originally, um, I'm, I'm very, I have and I continue to be very much involved with the, uh, with the Davenant Institute. I've, I've done, uh, I've, I've contributed other things uh, uh, to their various publications. I've, uh, I've edited, I've also edited some primary source works for them and so forth. So, when the opportunity came to contribute to this volume dealing with the, the constructive use of philosophy in the development and advancement of Christian theology, I jumped at the chance because that's also a, a, a subject that, is, uh, that has and continues to be of great interest to me. And, and, uh, and as a historical theologian, and a church historian, and one who specializes in the Reformation and in the English Reformation, um, I wanted to do so. I wanted to do something that uh, that would uh, contribute to this uh, volume. That would contribute to this field. It would also contribute to my own area of research, my own at least my own general area of research, at the same time, and. There's already been um, there. There has and continues to be scores of uh, scores of, of uh, such things on uh, on Hooker, who we Richard Hooker, who we uh, know much later in the 16th century, uh, used uh, interacts with philosophy uh, considerably in his uh, laws of ecclesiastical polity. I want to do something that was at least to this particular audience was somewhat less known. And so that, and so I settled on uh, John, on John Colette. And what is, uh, talk to me a little bit, you mentioned it briefly, but um, John Colette started St. Paul's. Correct. He started the, well, he started the school, the cathedral school associated oh. with St. Paul's. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me, yeah. Let me correct that. Correct. The, uh, the school there and it's still going today. It is. Yep. It is. 
It's actually today still regards one of the greatest uh, uh, elite private schools in um, in Great Britain. So it's interesting to see. I mean, so that's about five hundred years now. Correct. That, that has has continued. Uh, so his legacy. Uh, I mean, to give some people uh, some context here, um, what one of the things uh, that I I've always loved how uh, you articulated. What is the value of such an in-depth and particular study, right? I mean, it's like, it's so kind of niched down, you know, uh, considering the weave of the text, you have John Collette, this English Reformed uh, persona, Neoplatonic exegesis of 1 Corinthians. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think a lot of times people would see some of the things that uh, you would teach in class or that you would write, and they would be like, that's so it, that's so narrow. But what I found is uh, under your teaching, um, and this is one of the things I, I wanted to kind of bring out today, is that by going down that narrow, you were able to address actually a broad range of topics. For instance, mm-hmm. the way that you talked about exegesis through uh, for royal supremacy uh, in your other work. Um, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but if you don't mind uh, talking about what are the advantages? What do we what do we gain by doing these very uh, particular historical studies like this? Well, I would say first of all that um, it, this particular study gives us sort of an object lesson of a broader of a um, of a broader concern, and that broader concern has to do with really the the relationship between uh, biblical exegesis and the incorporation of um, of uh, external of external sources in the in the aiding of the exegesis of the exegetical uh, enterprise uh, in so doing it's important we were trying to demonstrate that um, that biblical exegesis is not simply or purely a matter of just, um, of, just uh, of just transferring what is written on the bare page of a text. There's an entire, there's an entire, pro, there's an entire complexity of, uh, of processes that take place and that more, and that oftentimes one does exegesis, whether it's in the 16th century, whether it was in the, uh, the 12th century, whether it's in the 4th century, whether it's in the 20th and the 21st century, one does exegesis really within the, within, uh, the context of an adopted philosophical framework. And that philosophical framework forms how one employs a particular exegetical method it also influences and shapes the conclusions that one reaches as a result of uh, employing that exegesis. But at the same time, there's a reciprocal relationship. The biblical text that one is exegeting also shapes continuously that philosophical framework within which uh, the exegete is operating. Yes, I, I, uh, the phrase in your essay is, he engaged the biblical text in such a way that he permitted the text to refine or correct that same framework. Correct. Yes. 
Yes. And I, I think, uh, and one thing that I really, um, uh, I think I, I'd already kind of uh, appreciated um, before, but that you really hammered home was that uh, it's easy when we talk in generalities to create straw men, but if you deal with particular uh, with particular people, with primary sources, it, it helps us to avoid straw men because we have to deal with the actual words of people themselves. Whereas when Correct. you lump a bunch of people together, you know, it, it becomes easy to just say, well, this is whatever, what they say. And you just, you, you don't get into the nuances of the argument. And I think that's something that, you know, even as you talk about the, you know, when you talk about neoplatonic theologians, it's easy to say, well, they just fell prey to, um, kind of platonic heresies. But when you look at someone like John Collette, who is, has this reciprocal refining um, approach, uh, it's much more difficult to just dismiss it, if that makes sense. And I agree. Um, how does th uh, this work here kind of fit into the broader scope of, of the whole book when it talks about the philosophy and the Christian? Well, it fits within the broader scheme of the entire book in the sense that the whole thesis of the book overall is that philosophy can be constructively used in the, in the, in the doing of theology. And, what, and really, the purpose of this volume is to recover uh, the, uh, the you know, the, the conviction as well as the practice of uh, people such as um, uh, certainly Justin Martyr, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, controversial though he was. Um, uh, and then certainly moving into the Middle Ages, people like Thomas Aquinas of this practice that philosophy, despite what Tertullian, despite what Tertullian uh, asserted, uh, is not a philosophy in and of itself uh, is not opposed to Christian theology. Rather, it is a friend and it is a servant to Christian theology. And if, any, and if anything were to uh, uh, confirm that to us, it would be certainly the, uh, the discussions regarding the Trinity in the, in the fourth century, which then ultimately led to the, uh, to the, um, uh, explanation, uh, defense, and confirmation of the homoousios doctrine as being the, the orthodox means of explaining uh, the, the ontological relationship within the persons of the, among the persons within the Trinity, in this particular case, uh, the relationship between the Son and the Father. Yes, and you, you reference, uh, uh, just to go back briefly, um, the figures who felt that appropriating philosophy for Christian theology was appropriate. Um, that was not an intentional wordplay. Uh, but I think, uh, I don't know if you mentioned Augustine, but you know you mentioned him in the essay, obviously uh, a major figure in that. Um, one that uh, didn't come up because uh, he would not have been, um, uh, he, he would have come after Colette, but uh, obviously Calvin also uh, firmly falls in that tradition. Uh, if you read through his institutes. Um, and so kind of as, as we uh, look at this, um, 
Can you talk us through John Collette's um, what? And I, I'm, I, I, it seems to you seem to have a pro, a positive view of John Collette's Neoplatonic exegesis here. Uh, can you talk us through what is valuable and what he brings to the table in his uh, in his reading and theology? Well, I would say first of all, he what he brings. Well, for one thing, I think what he brings to the table is he tries he tries himself first and foremost to be biblical himself, and the reason he adopts this framework within which to do biblical exegesis because it's in his estimation. This was the frame. This was the general framework that was affirmed uh, by the overall scriptural narrative itself. So first, so first and foremost. So I mean, there. So I would say that it's valuable in the sense that that there is the effort to begin with scripture and then to try to construct a worldview on the basis uh, on the basis of scripture, but at the same time one can use scripture to evaluate which of the different systems of philosophy that are out there best accord with the general sense and narrative that runs through scripture so i would say that's the first thing that was that's the first thing uh another another th another i think important aspect of this is I think Colette's concern to, to draw people and hence the church to an understanding that there is a genuine, a, a genuine relationship with Christ. The church is not just, the church is just not metaphorically the body of Christ. It is in actuality, although mysteriously, in a way that obviously cannot be uh, empirically demonstrated. It is truly and really the body of Christ, which means that every believer, every regenerate believer, is in some way truly and genuinely uh, united to Christ as part of his body. And there's a there's a couple different ways that this comes up, this kind of reclamation of uh, the Greek heritage um, as uh, where the whereas uh, Latin uh, had dominated for a while. And we see this kind of with, you know, the rise of Neoplatonism. I think it was uh, either Ficino or Medici, who was um, Ficino. Piccino, who was lamenting, you know, if we had just had, you know, Plato earlier. Um, well, it was, it was, well, it was, um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was Lorenzo, uh, De, it was Lorenzo de' Medici who kind of, affir who sort of affirms it in, in that way. Because um, really, I mean, it goes back to really the, the purpose of, of humanism in the Renaissance, especially Christian, especially what we call Christian humanism, and that was to somehow recover the idea that, um, in in the same vein as people like Justin Martyr, in the same vein as people like Augustine, that um, that 
many of these philosophers, in this case, Plato, uh, held to a notion of truth that in many ways uh, substantially anticipated their more complete form in, in, in Christianity. Yes, and uh, what's interesting to me um, is one that openness to truth resulted in something, uh, and even that that kind of reciprocal and critical thinking resulted in something valuable. Even though and you do bring this up, that a lot of this is based on too a, a flawed historical view of Paul and pseudo Dionysius. Like part of the reason he thinks there's a uh, that. Neoplatonism is the framework. It's because he thought that was Paul's framework. Exactly. Can exactly. You... And then his. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. Can... No, I was gonna ask you. Just can you um, can you just uh, speak to that a little bit? Because I know, like, that's a fascinating. The fact that it is so valuable, and yet a lot of it, I, I think that speaks to the the critical work that they're doing and the the hard intellectual work, in spite of uh, uh, the the problems that um, arise from this kind of false, uh, uh, this false view uh, of the authorship. Well, I mean, it was assumed for a long, it was assumed for a long time that uh, pseudo Dionysus was the, was the, was the, uh, the, 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 was the, was the actual Areopagite who uh, was converted uh as a result of uh, Paul's uh, address to the Areopagus at uh, at Mars Hill, as recorded in Acts chapter seventeen, and so somebody like Colette, as well as others, would uh, would look at would look at the various works of uh, Pseudo Dionysus, and they would and they would infer, among other things, that because he was influenced by the Apostle Paul, uh, that to a large extent, his uh, appropriation of uh, of Platonism in in the development of his very elaborate uh, Christian metaphysic was uh, somehow derived from Paul himself. So there are so you're right. There are certain historical uh, assumptions, fallacious as though they uh, fallacious as though we may find them today, that would have certainly helped lend themselves. Uh, to this kind of a conclusion, and hence the idea that a Neoplatonic uh, metaphysic is indeed, uh, to some extent or another, the uh, the purported uh, biblical uh, metaphysic. And what I find interesting about that is um, how good Colette's exegesis is, even though it's built on kind of this idea, right? He starts with this framework, believing that it, uh, for historically fallacious ideas, and yet he's able to create something good even on top of what many would consider kind of uh, an easily criticized foundation. Oh, yes, and I would agree. And I think what one has to do in historical study is always examine the subject within uh, his or her particular context. And I think, and that means uh, granting the assumption, granting that uh, they held certain assumptions themselves to be true uh, as they were doing as they were doing their work. And I think by showing that kind of charity and also humility, mm. uh, one can gain 
the very most uh, from their contribution. And why would you say, and I know this is just like probably the most uh, frustrating question that you get uh, from freshmen all the time, right? What is the value? Why, why do we care about their contribution? Well, because they contribute, because they're extending a much larger conversation. A larger conversation concerning, in this case, uh, the nature of God, the you know the nature, the nature of the Trinity, the nature, the the nature and work of Christ, uh, on the basis of the reading, meditation, and study of Scripture. And so, I think what's important for people to realize, including freshmen, and I, and <laughs> I. I, I deal with undergraduates every single day, obviously, is to show them that there is a much larger conversation that is just beyond themselves uh, and their TikTok. <laughs> oh, man, it's such an easy target. No, um, the uh, TikTok, I mean, but uh, yeah, and I, I, I think that's kind of that uh, ongoing thread that's really important and fascinating to me is that idea of this continuing conversation, right? This, uh, this idea that um, we need to understand how we got where we are in order to exactly forward. And also I would, and also I would add to that too, that the study of scripture, the meditating of uh, on scripture, mm. the, the doing of theology that proceeds from that is a communal activity. It is a communal activity that occurs within the the worshiping community of a church that has uh, that ha that that ha that has gone on for centuries uh, that contribute that continues to take place and in which then each and every one of us uh, uh, plays a participating role. We we get we 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 participate in the conversation ourselves and then once we understand what the state of that conversation are is ourselves then we're able by way of our particular contribution to extend that conversation further uh so dr zell you're talking about how we have this continuing conversation among the worshiping body of the church um that is really and truly connected uh you know we have this mystical union with christ john collette leans on that heavily in first Corinthians. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, Colette's view of that mystical union and how it even um, informs this historical, uh, th this discussion of historical significance of theology? Oh, sure. Um, well, first of all, once again, he's proceeding from, he's proceeding from the, uh, the platonic understanding of, of the, of the, of the forms. With uh, and in this particular case, uh, Plato's understanding of the and really as well as uh, appropriate by the later Neoplatonists, the uh, the form of the good. And so, in this case, and so in this case, Christ is the form. Christ is the form of the good. And between the form of the good and Neoplatonic thought, between the form of the good, there's also the the noose and the world soul. And so what he does is, in this respect, he he kind of collapses both the world soul and the noose 
into into the Holy Spirit, and so it is the whole and so it is the Holy Spirit who kind of within this framework acting as kind of the uh, the news the world soul then connects Christian then connects Christians the uh, the 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 members of the church to Christ Himself, but at the same time the the church is kind of a form if you would of christ himself is the form of the good and that's why it reflects it reflects the reality of of who christ is but yet but yet does so imperfectly uh and maybe he didn't have these resources to hand uh i can't remember i think you mentioned something close to it but do you think he's in any way reclaiming uh, the idea of theosis and deification from his study in uh, the Greek authors? Oh, definitely. I think he. Lean, I think he certainly. Uh, he certainly. I think he does lean very heavily towards something like that. Yes, because I think a, a Neoplatonic framework is going to somehow lead to some aspect of that. Yes, and I think that makes sense, right? Like, I mean, that's often been a very uh, Greek Orthodox notion um, uh, it, going back to the early church fathers. And so if he's leaning on those resources, that you'd think that would happen. Um, so, and, and remind me a little bit, um, I think I remember, but uh, as we talk about the world soul in the news, do you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Well, I mean, from, if, I'm, if my memory serves me right, uh, emanating from the you know, from the form of the good would be the noose, then emanating from the noose would be the world soul. The world soul is what, in a sense, would be that emanation that would connect uh, the spiritual, in this case, the noose, uh, to, phys- to the physical world. And so what, and so what, um, what Colette does in that case is he substitute he he substitutes both of those by way of the incarnation. He says that the reality of the incarnation, in which the form of the good joins himself in solidarity to humanity, uh, completely uh, supplants any uh, need or role for either the world soul or the news. Because what happens is the incarnation makes sure that the that christ as the form of the good ends up functioning as both yeah and this is uh in many ways his kind of reclamation with that kind of reciprocity i think you mentioned yes. earlier yes. uh well reclamation of uh plotinus or you know yes. as the cultures it, it say the it cultures is. say plotinus um the uh, <laughs> uh but um as we as we talk here um when you think about his uh, his use of scripture in recovering that matter is good, how does he uh, synthesize that with the, his Neoplatonic framework? Uh, yeah, and I know you mentioned the incarnation. Can you dig a little bit deeper into that? Well, the incarnation for Colette, as well as any, as well as any Christian theologian who's adopted a Neoplatonic framework, the the incarnation is also the basis for that becomes the means for the re, the famous recapitulation 
the returning of the returning of all things uh, back into the one, uh, back into the form, and back into the form of the good. The um, and specifically what the incarnation does is the incarnation achieves this kind of restoration of all things so that God is once again all in all, as Paul says. He does, the incarnation becomes the basis by which then uh, Christ redeems uh, certainly humanity, but also along with humanity, really ultimately the whole, uh, in, in a fundamental sense, the whole of creation. Yeah, and it, would he have been familiar with Origen, or was Origen's work uh, missing at this point for him? Oh, oh no, he definitely would have been familiar with Origen. So, matter in fact, um, a little uh, matter of fact, a little later, uh, a scholar who's greatly influenced by Colette, named Erasmus, <laughs> would uh, would actually produce critical editions of the uh, works of Origen. So, certainly, Colette would have been very familiar with the with Origen. I, I mean, that came to mind when you're talking about the central role that recapitula recapitulation makes. Uh, or has in his theology. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about Colette's own view of philosophy as the servant of scripture? I know we've touched on that ourselves briefly, but um, there is a there is an interesting, <laughs> uh, he has an interesting kind of diatribe in the middle of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, where he, he does word against that. But on the other hand, we see him, you know, attending the Neoplatonic Academy in um, uh, Florence. Right. Uh, can you can you talk us through kind of the historical situation of that and what that view what what you believe John Collette's view to be on philosophy as the servant of scripture as you put it? Well, he would be very he would be very selective in in the types of philosophers. Uh even I mean and and in this case certainly uh those whom we would regard as pagan philosophers. He would regard he would he would dis he would discount certain philosophers who, uh, you know, whose whose worldviews would uh, directly contravene um, Orthodox Christianity, and so and so his comment there uh, in his uh, in his um, uh, commentary on First uh, Corinthians has to do with the kinds of philosophy. And the kinds of philosophers who which whose views and systems would completely and totally contradict Christianity. So so he would not so he's not advocating he's not advocating for the use of philosophy for its own sake. Uh, rather, he would say that the best philosophy, the true philosophy, the true exemplars of philosophy would be those who approximate the their understanding of the truth in such a way that it would confirm the uh, base the uh, the basic uh, teachings, metaphysically in every other respect, of uh, of Orthodox Christianity. And this is where um, I mean you get into this, but he talks uh, quite a bit about the metaphor of the divine rays. Yes. Uh, do you mind uh, elaborating a little bit on his uh, view of that? And obviously that plays uh, very heavily into his view of philosophy as the servant of scripture. And uh, this is, I think, oh. coming from his, uh, from both uh, 
Plotinus, Augustine, and Pseudo-Dionysius, the it, idea that God is the divine son. Oh, it is. It is. And so, well, the way this, the way this works is that the that God, that the divine rays are for uh, for Colette are symbolic of God's grace. It's a metaphor that's indicative of God's grace, and by way of those rays, uh, which affect a kind of illumination in the way that Augustine would uh, understand it, uh, these rays enlighten human understanding, and in so doing draw human beings uh, to God himself as the, uh, and, and specifically Christ here as the source of all truths, who being the very truth himself. And what is the relationship there? Because this is kind of fascinating. He talks about it as grace, but then it's the son is truth. What, um, what is the relationship there between grace and truth? Well, because, well, because, well, Colette's also Augustinian. So it is grace it is God's grace, in this case, to use Augustinian terms, uh, grace by way of illumination that brings human beings to the truth. The truth that is Christ. Uh, and what do you see like different types of grace apart from that illumination, right? So for him, am I understanding that correctly or? Oh, sure. I mean, there okay. are, well, sure. I mean, there are, I mean, for, I mean, for one thing, he would, uh, he would acknowledge that uh, there were there are ver there are various of uh, uh, forms of grace that gave tremendous understanding about the truth to people like Plato, you know Aristotle, and so forth. But then the apostles, in his estimation, again following along the same trajectory as Justin Martyr, um, Augustine, and so forth. Uh, they would have they had a they had the full understanding of that truth because they knew the truth incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, but also it's interesting on that same count in terms of in, in terms of the rays, going back to that metaphor once again, yes. within the body within the body of Christ itself, the church, there are varying degree there are even varying degrees of that. So there are those. So there are those who, by virtue of their even within the body of Christ, because of their closer uh, proximity <coughs> to the head, mm -hmm. have more. They have more illumination. They enjoy more of the uh, of the uh, light coming from the rays than perhaps some others, even within the church itself, who are still joined to the same body. And what I, I noticed that you said that in there, and. Uh... It seemed to me there are a couple different things that he could be hinting at there, and or maybe several of them together. Um, is he defending? Is that in some, in many ways, him defending hierarchical authority, or is that also, or is that him defending uh, people who are in different uh, stages of repentance and um, spiritual life, or is it both of those things? I would say I, I would say that's both of those things, because I mean for. Because for uh, for someone like Colette, there is the there's the there's a societal aspect of this in the form of Christendom, uh, in the form of the Christian society or the rest or the Respublica Christiana, the Christian Commonwealth. There's that. So there's there there is that 
there is a hierarchical structure as manifested in in, in Christian society. So it would certainly lend it. So that so there that would serve as confirmation of that. But also, uh, but at the same time, within the within the church itself, which would also encompass to a large extent Christian society. Sure, there are various people. There are people who are joined to Christ um, by way of various levels of grace. You know, some are, you know, uh, some are experiencing, um, some are a certain stage in repentance, and uh, whereas uh, maybe some are not. Um, and, and that's really, you know, the, the societal aspect of that is is fascinating to me. Um, and, uh, would he, I, I know that, uh, you know, I think he, you talk a little bit about the Hussites. Would he, I think you mentioned he's a little bit, uh, favorable to them, or at least he was reading stuff that was favorable to them. Would that be considered? And I have to admit, it has been a hot minute since I've looked at anything John Huss, but, uh, <laughs> has he experienced any, um, would he have already understood that there were like major challenges to the, to the this kind of hierarchical and societal structure structure. Oh, sure. He would have. Oh, sure. Because, um, he's also, because, I mean, he, he's also functioning within the context of, um, of early, of early, uh, early Tudor politics. So he, so as a Dean, I mean, he's the Dean of St. Paul's as a very prestigious, uh, ecclesiastical position. And one that certainly uh, entailed uh, direct interaction with not only the um, the, the ecclesiastical structures of uh, early Tudor England, but also the political structures as well. Um, uh, both of which, at, in this period especially, were um, were more often than not very much intertwined. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I I'm glad that we don't have that you know, problem today, um, uh, or that, that happens at all today. Uh, forgive me, just a little sarcasm there, but, um, <laughs> so, uh, and then, you know, I, I'm just going through the different sections you have here. Um, this notion that, uh, we have the universe replicated in smaller, uh, contexts, you know, like that humans are a, a model of the universe or like their mm-hmm. own universe. Right. Uh, can you uh, elaborate on that further? The idea it was fascinating. Well, sure. the The universe itself is uh, is the work of God. As the work of God is also, it's also structured in a in a certain way. And and there and. Uh, what might be analogous to that would be the ordering within within the human being of, you know, the uh, the reason, the will, and the passions, with the re- with the re- with reason being sort of in the dri- kind of being in the driver's seat, operating you know, operating on the will, which in turn being informed by the reason then uh operates the operates the appetite so just as the so just as the universe itself at least as as colette would have understood it in these platonic terms is properly ordered and structured 
and operates that way. So human beings are also intended to operate in the same manner as the universe and then being joined to Christ makes that possible. This shows up in multiple ways with both the church and with, it seems like, um, uh, humanity itself. Am I understanding that correctly? Correct. Um, and so is this, this uh, like, model is repeated over and over again? Oh, it is. It is. Because there's also, there's also, a, there's also by way of being joined to Christ, uh, through his body, the church, there's also sort of a joint connection between humanity and the universe itself as being the overall work of God. And this go, and again, this goes back really to the, um, you know, to the inner, to this kind of the interconnected system of emanations that exist. Which in this case is uh, distinct from someone like Plotinus because of the incarnation. And Correct. That, yes. Okay, coming and, back kind of full circle to that. Right. And again, for, for, um, for Colette, the, the incarnation is what, is, what me, is what actually makes this real in the first place. And I think this draws me like, um, you know, I want to be uh, cognizant of your time. Um, and so, one, thank you so much. Uh, but kind of, to, uh, I think a great way to wrap this up is, uh, you know, we talked about the incarnation and I, obviously as a Neoplatonist, uh, Colette is very focused on knowledge, on truth. These are like reoccurring and powerful themes in Neoplatonic thought. But you ended with the divine movement by love and that love is this special mm. cosmic force. Uh, what is the, what is Colette's view on love? And how does that, the importance of that knowledge and the importance of that truth um, interact with interact with love? What is the interplay there? Well, he takes as his uh, point of departure uh, the work of Ficino, who identified three kinds of love, natural, sensitive, and rational. And so the natural love is... consists of that natural pull of various what you may call impersonal objects in the universe. Uh, there, and then there's the sense of love, which is then found in, in living creatures who are not rational like animals. And that is that's that's revealed in the animal's instinctive uh, sense for self-preservation, running away, you know, fleeing from danger and things like this. But then there's the highest form of love, which for Ficino and then and then certainly Colette, there's rational love that exists in that exists in human beings along with the, along with the other two. And this is and what and this kind of love, which is primarily intellectual enables humanity to first of all conceive of the ideas of truth goodness and beauty and then it also inclines them to 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 strive for those to be drawn to those and ultimately that rational love that enables human beings to draw to to incline themselves towards good truth and beauty that 
becomes really, that becomes enhanced by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit who indwells human beings, once again, joining them to Christ, and which then highlights for Colette especially, uh, this idea of love being the principle of the of the virtues and, and, and specifically what was what would have been regarded as the theological virtues and so for him this this kind this dynamic this explanation of it this accounting of it uh solidifies it solidifies love all the more as the principal source of all the other virtues which makes sense makes sense and in exegesis of first corinthians when you talk about the greatest of these is love exactly and that's and that's how and that's exactly how he exegetes in this case first corinthians 13. uh you know he, he talks about love is the force that moves the cosmos uh <laughs> and it, it allows it to fulfill its intended function universal harmony and morality correct according from here uh can you distinguish because um love is such an important word but it's such an abused word can you distinguish his view of uh rational love from maybe some uh of the more uh unhelpful characterizations that may be in our audience's head right now okay well for colette just as within overall christian tradition what he will call rational love there's a reason why it's, why it's called rational love it's love that, first of all, is informed and shaped by truth. And again, the truth who is Jesus Christ. And it is this, it is this truth that is, who, that is Jesus Christ when it, when it works itself upon uh, the human being. Well, then that enable that enables that enables love to then be properly um informed and driven by reason and that reason you know, and, and then reason being uh that which is rightfully ordered by truth uh and this is why we see jesus as uh truth and jesus as um love this uh, is why the mystical union is so important. Is that you exactly? Can't, yes, you can't have uh, love, and you can't. You certainly can't have truth without this um, interconnected mystical union with Christ, because He is the source of all these things in a, in this Neoplatonic framework. Correct. Correct. Doctor Yuzal, it has been such a pleasure having you on. Uh, just as we kind of wrap up here. What is one takeaway you would have specifically for our audience? Well, I would say appreciate the fact that there is unity in truth. Stated negatively, try to shun the, the false dichotomy between sacred knowledge and so-called secular knowledge. And I think that's that kind of assumption that drives the false dichotomy between the adversarial dichotomy between theology and philosophy. That uh, philosophy is just another way, really, at least for the Christian, it's just another way of contemplating and considering uh, the same truth. And that together, our examination of truth is another way pr of 
of worshipfully and prayerfully thinking God's thoughts after him. What a beautiful summary of what we've talked about today. Thank you, Dr. Gazal. Well, thank you. Thank you, PJ. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to be on your program here. Uh, and thank you again for your very kind and gracious invitation. 